All right, hi everybody. We're going to get started. Um, all right, so I hope everybody was able to um, not have too hard of a commute. I was amazed. I like flew in. It was probably the easiest I've gone to UBC ever. I don't know what happened. Last night was not the same. Um, all right, so we are going to get started today. I did want to check in on the book situation. Um, has anybody been able to get the book? Some people have. Okay. Um, does anybody know if the bookstore is sold out now? Anybody know? Okay. Well, if um, if you haven't been able to get the book by next week, certainly let me know. Um, I can scan another chapter. It's a real pain, to be honest, so I prefer not to, but I can. Um, everyone found the reading I put up in Canvas? Okay. Saw it up there. Okay. Um, so I'll, I may end up scanning one more chapter, but hopefully by um, two weeks from now, everyone's got the book. Um, I think if you put your order in with the publisher too, it should be here pretty quickly. Anybody order it from the publisher directly? No? Okay. All right. Well, hopefully the bookstore has gotten off and it's not even an issue. Um, so I am going to be recording this, uh, putting it up as a podcast. I sent the link out. It's going to be the same feed as was previous. Um, so starting tomorrow afternoon or so, it should be up available. It'll usually be about a 24-hour lag. It is a little bit of just a pain in the butt to uh, format it and get it up online. But I don't mind doing it, but it just takes a little while. So it won't be sort of instantaneous, but within 24 hours or so. And also my notes that I'm lecturing from will be up in Canvas around the same time, or within 24 hours or so. And so you can start drawing from those. Um, are there any questions about anything administrative or practical? I guess saying anything administrative is a little bit loaded, but anything practical. All right, so let's get into it. Um, today we had our first chapter which is, a, I think, quite a nice overview of administrative law, although it's probably a little bit deeper at times than is really going to resonate on a sort of first brush with this area of law. But hopefully reading that chapter and then having this lecture will give you some of these big picture themes, which we're going to keep coming back to. And I'm always amazed at how often throughout the course I return to these themes that we you know, talk about in this first day, there really are a few key ideas that just show up again and again and again. And we'll introduce them today, but we certainly won't leave them today. We'll be we'll be touching back on these throughout the course. So administrative law um, is underpinned in many ways by three key big ideas. The rule of law, the idea of responsible government and the concept of parliamentary supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty. These all probably sound familiar to a greater or lesser extent. I'm sure you've touched base on all of these, but we're going to go a little bit deeper into them and explain how they resonate in administrative law. Starting with the rule of law, which I'm going to introduce today, but we're actually going to have two more full lectures on the concept of the rule of law because it's absolutely central to the why of administrative law and it really gets at the um, these tensions that are going to explain why this area of law is so fraught and unsettled 
And that is something that you'll notice in administrative law. Like if I took, I took contract law here, Allard, it was called UBC law then in 2006, and I bet you very little's changed. You got Satva, you probably learned about Satva. I bet you I know all the other cases that you guys learned because contract law doesn't change, you know? Tort law doesn't change in any big way. Administrative law is entirely different from what I learned. It, it's an area that is extremely dynamic and changing. And it's kind of a puzzle as to why. You get a little bit of the answer in the book. We'll talk in a second about the history of administrative law not being that long and not even being a sort of known phrase or concept, you know, of 60, 70 years ago. Uh, but the other reason, I think, is that there is a real tension that arises really in relation to concerns about the rule of law and parliamentary supremacy that leads people to have sort of outsized visceral reactions to administrative law. And it almost can be akin to your sort of core political beliefs, which side of the these debates you fall upon. And we're going to talk about that today and introduce those ideas. But I hope you'll leave today with a sense as to why is this an area of law that's so in flux? And maybe you'll get a little bit of an answer. And we'll start to unwind that sort of question, talking about the rule of law. And I forget what case it is, but some judge says something like, you know, few phrases get bandied about more than the rule of law. And I think that's absolutely true. It's something that, you know, I, I would say in most cases I argue both sides have some framing as to why their position is the one that's consistent with the rule of law. Everybody seems to have an understanding of what the rule of law means. And I have a pretty funny story that I've told lots of times, but I'm going to tell it again because it's worth it. I was working as a articling student at 222 Maine, the criminal courts. I was working for Department of Justice at the time. And I was in court, um, and the guy ahead of me wanted a two-week, to, to put his matter off for two weeks. Now, this is like the easiest thing in the world to get. You go and you say, I'd like to put my matter for two weeks. They say, great. But this guy um, was a bit of a character. He went by the name Bud the Oracle. And what he had been brought up on charges of was he had a YouTube channel where he had taken his video camera and just like shown an endless supply of drugs, just like I have all the drugs in the world. I'm Bud the Oracle. Come and arrest me, VPD. And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so they did. And so Bud is in court trying to get a two-week adjournment. And the judge says to him, uh, you know, Mr. Oracle, uh, why are you here today? He starts talking, talking, talking. He says the phrase, rule of law. Judge says to him, well, Mr. Oracle, what does the rule of law mean to you? And I swear you could see the judge's face fall. Like, why did I say that? Why did I ask that question? And he goes on and like, it felt like half an hour. It's probably more like five minutes of his like deep, deep, philosophical ideas behind the rule of law. And the judge was just like, well, I asked, you know, like, what? this is on me. But the irony of somebody who, you know, is putting a YouTube video up saying, here's all the drugs, come arrest me, but saying that my position is consistent with the rule of law 
is it may seem ironic, but it's in my experience, every single person, uh, every single litigant feels in a way that the rule of law is on their side. The you know I had another experience that was um, my friend was arguing an intervention in the Supreme Court of Canada, and he had this long, um, very good submission on how the rule of law and administrative law context supported a position advanced by the BC government. And um, you guys familiar with Justice Rowe? You know Justice Rowe? So he's got this kind of wild hair and kind of a little bit of an intimidating guy. And the Supreme Court of Canada, you have these little microphones and you have to press a button to talk. And like he doesn't press his, but they must have to replace it every week because he slams his thing down and he's just like, that's not my rule of law. And then pulls it off. And there's something in that phrase that gets me though, where it's like my rule of law in the sense that everybody seems to almost have their own conception of the rule of law, their own sort of personal idea of the rule of law. And I think you can bring that to even some extremes. You guys are probably familiar with this sort of called a trend, call it a, I don't know, epidemic of these freemen on the land, kind of these people who have these really amazingly convoluted ideas about the law and about the fact that it doesn't apply to them, right? And what would seem more antithetical to the rule of law than people who say, you know, none of your laws apply to me. Uh, but in a way, they are the truest believers in the rule of law because their theories tend to be things like the Income Tax Act wasn't signed in the right way 100 years ago, so it doesn't bind me, which is an absolutely strict formalistic idea of law. And so their theories are, are based upon an idea that they have a, you know, a deeper and more profound idea of the rule of law and that they won't obey these laws which they see as invalid and inapplicable to them. There's an even, um, you know, an example that I don't know if you still learn. I learned this in criminal law. Does this ring a bell, a case where there was a person who there was a, a, a warrant being executed against them and they were on their roof throwing hot oil onto police officers as they tried to execute their warrant. Does anybody, does this ring a bell at all? I guess this dropped out of the syllabus of criminal law. I don't know why. I pretty much I like it a lot. The way the case turned out, though, is that the warrant was invalid. It was improperly drawn up. The person had asked the police officers to leave. They hadn't left, so they were found to be, in essence, common trespassers on the person's lawn, and he was entitled to eject them with force. So he was acquitted for throwing hot oil on police officers. And so what I'm getting at with that last example is this point that law, the rule of law has this idea behind it that just because you're the state, just because you're a police officer, a state actor, doesn't give you any inherent right to do anything. If you can't point to a lawful basis for your power, for your exercise of power, you don't have that power. So I wanted to introduce the rule of law with a few stories, anecdotes, just to kind of get you thinking about how broad 
a concept it is, how different people claim it, and we're going to see the rule of law claimed by lots of different people in lots of different ways in this course. But where I want to narrow down and leave you with a real takeaway is what is the rule of law uh, as we're going to really focus on it in this course? And it boils down to the idea that state action must find a basis in law. State actors, state action must find a basis in law. And state actors have no inherent power to interfere with individuals. You have to find some root in law for any state action. So that's the, the first of two really big rule of law concepts that I want you to just have in the back of your mind. And you're going to see that it really animates the judge's role in administrative law. And it is going to get at a tricky issue we're going to introduce later in the, later in the class today about this thing called privative clauses. So we'll come back to rule of law in this concept. We talk about privative clauses. Um, there's another component of the rule of law that I want to introduce now that is also relevant. And this is the component that drives this sort of deep philosophical debate. And it is, does the law have a concrete objective meaning? Is there one answer to a legal question? We're going to get back into this in the question of legal formalism versus legal realism in a few minutes. So I don't want to get too far into this right now. But from a rule of law perspective, you can see the um, the tension that arises if you answer that in the negative, that no, there isn't just one meaning of the law, that the law can have different reasonable meanings and there isn't a single objective right answer to legal problems. If you, if you reject the idea there is one single correct legal interpretation to any legal problem, you start to run into questions. Well, how can we have a rule of law if it's indeterminate. So this is a, a key problem. We're going to come back to it in a second. I just wanted to introduce it here under the rule of law heading, but we'll speak about it much more uh, this class. So that's just a first introduction to the rule of law. I'm going to move into the next of these three overarching themes that I wanted to set out at the outset. This is the idea of responsible government. This is a phrase that I kind of remember knowing I'd heard, but sort of forgetting what it really meant. It's really a bit more of a political science uh, concept than something that comes up in law regularly, sort of high-level structure of government. But it's the notion that anyone exercising state action must ultimately be accountable to the electorate, democratic accountability. And to be clear, 
very few people in the Canadian government are elected. Obviously, it's the legislature. We don't elect judges, thankfully. But ultimately, state power needs to be traceable back to actions by elected officials. Legislation, regulation, which is just one level removed, but is ultimately done pursuant to powers granted by the legislature. And then ultimately the highest level um, actors within the executive in our system wear two hats. They're both members of parliament and members of the executive. I'm talking about ministers. By convention, ministers are um, almost overwhelmingly members of parliament, elected legislators who also wear the hat of being a minister and thereby being part of the executive with the prime minister, obviously. And so many people within the executive are appointed, but they're appointed by constitutional convention on the advice of somebody who's ultimately elected. So judges are actually appointed by the governor general, right? But the governor general acts on the advice of the prime minister to make appointments. So the idea theoretically is that all power is ultimately gonna be traceable back to an act of an elected official in some way. You may have to go through a long and winding road to get there to figure out how it's traceable back, but ultimately it ought to be. And you can kind of see how this goes hand in hand with the idea that all state action must be authorized by law. And law is made by an elected body. So when you put these two concepts together, you get the idea that state action needs to be authorized by law and democratically accountable. And that's this base level requirement that the project of administrative law in many ways is ensuring is accomplished. Okay, so the final concept I want to touch base on is the idea of parliamentary supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty. There may be a subtle distinction between those two phrases. I don't know what it is. I think they mean the same thing. And in essence, this is the idea that there is nothing that the legislature cannot do. There's no law that the legislature cannot pass. There's a nuance to that in Canada because of the split in federalism. But the idea is the combined powers of the provincial legislatures plus the parliament can pass any law whatsoever as they see fit. 
Now, this was the dominant theory for Canadian constitutional structure, the Canadian government, until April 17, 1982. That's when the charter came into effect. I'm not that much of a nerd that I know it off the top of my head, except for it's my wife's birthday. She was born that day. So I remember that. Um, but once the Constitution Act 1982 comes into effect, parliamentary supremacy starts to be tempered by constitutional supremacy. And now there isn't the same truth that there's any law whatsoever the parliament combined with the provincial legislatures can enact. Now there are limits, charter, right? Section 35. But for administrative law, until we get to the admin law and the charter component where we talk about the difficult question of integrating charter into administrative law analysis, we're generally speaking um, dealing with the sort of older conception of law and jurisdiction, which does presuppose parliament can do what it wants. It can pass any law whatsoever. And what we're going to see is that much of what we deal with in administrative law, when we talk about duties for administrative decision makers to act fairly or to act reasonably, are just presumptions that can be ousted by statute. And what I mean there is that the courts will presume that an administrative decision maker was not entitled to act unfairly, and if they act unfairly, will intervene, unless the statute says they can act unfairly. And that happens where the statute may explicitly say there is no right of participation here given to this person. Well, then even if the court thinks it's unfair, there's nothing they can do about it because it's parliamentary supremacy, unless you could find some constitutional argument, which we'll talk about are pretty rare. But this is a, um, a very important sort of attitude that you need to bring to your administrative law analysis is that unless we can find a charter hook to argue the legislation itself is problematic, we're in a world of if the statute says so, that goes. We are we're having to be very respectful in following these statutes and, and recognizing that Basically, everything I say can be overridden by express statutory language. That's going to come up again and again. Okay, so I've given these three concepts, but I haven't really you know, come back to really what is administrative law? What are we even doing here? And this is where I'm going to go back to my, my diagram, my Judiciary Legislative Executive Diagram. And as I explained last class, and I'll just reiterate again, fundamentally what we're doing in administrative law is we're looking at how the judiciary makes sure the executive stays within the scope of the powers they've been delegated by the legislature. And so in this diagram, I've added this sort of boundary around uh, the legislature and the executive, and you can think the boundary for the legislature, what can they do? Well, they can do things unless it's forbidden by the Constitution. 
You know, that's the check on parliamentary supremacy, the Constitution. What can the executive do? They can do such things as they're empowered to do through statutes and regulations. And put in parentheses, or prerogative powers. We'll talk more about prerogative powers, but they really are a very small piece of the puzzle, and I don't want to give them outsized importance. Really, you want to think the boundary is going to be statutes and regulations. So maybe that sounds theoretically okay, but what is the executive? That's sometimes hard to wrap your head around. It is so incredibly broad that it can be, you can almost, I, I still find myself surprised thinking, wait a second, wait, that is a government actor, isn't it? That's technically part of the executive and I could judicially review them. I always think I could just review you. If you uh, so, you know, it, it's incredibly broad. Um, you'll get a fishing permit, you know, you make an application or you go to a counter Tactically, the person who issues it is an administrative decision maker, part of the executive. CRA, CRA investigators, tax investigators, you know, a restaurant inspector. If you have a health inspector comes, part of the executive. So individuals exercising power, police officers, customs agents. How many people here have worked for the government at some point or another? Yeah, so about a third or so. You're all part of the executive, and I bet you a lot more of you will end up working for the government as lawyers, part of the executive then too. Then you have things that are really different in feel than a restaurant inspector, a lawyer, a customs officer. You have boards, residential tenancy board, workers' compensation board. National Energy Board, I guess Canada Energy Regulator now, you know, nuclear safety. There's endless different boards who make decisions or adjudicate disputes. You know, you want to get a, uh, a cutting permit, you can apply to the uh, uh, Minister of Forests and their delegated decision maker will make a decision on your cutting permit. You're upset with some forest issues, you can go to the Forest Practices Review Board. So the executive can look like individuals exercising power, can look like individuals just sort of going about ordinary government function. It can look like things that are really close to courts. The National Energy Board is very court-like in its uh, process and, and how it looks, but it really is fundamentally a, a part of the executive. So I don't think you're going to get your head around how broad this is for me just giving example after example, but I want that to be in your head. It's really broad and however broad I think it is, it's probably a little bit broader. I'm just going to do a quick um, open up the Federal Courts Act. Um, the Federal Courts Act creates the federal court, and we're going to talk more about the federal court later. In essence, administrative law is broken up, where if it's a federal decision maker, judicial review goes to the federal court. 
if it's a provincial decision maker, judicial review is done in the BC Supreme Court. That was a decision that the government did by enacting the federal courts act. We're going to talk about that more later. Don't worry about that right now. What I like about the federal courts act though, is it defines federal board commission or other tribunal. And that's the key phrase that's in the act to describe who is subject to judicial review. And it defines it in a way that's so broad that I think it gives you a bit of a sense as to who the executive might be. So I'm just going to read out this definition. Federal board commissioner other tribunal means any body, person, or persons having, exercising, or purporting to exercise jurisdiction or powers conferred by or under an act of parliament or by any or by or under an order made under a prerogative of the crown other than the tax court of Canada as judges any such body constitutes established under a law of a province or any such person or persons appointed under accordance with the law of a province so they're exempting provincial um, actors and that's because they're they don't go to the federal court as I said and they're exempting the tax court of Canada because it's really a court in a, in a different sense than the National Energy Board is. But beyond that, it is as broad as it could conceivably be. Any person exercising any power under any statute becomes a board commissioner or other tribunal. You know, you probably don't think of yourself when you worked for the government. If you only worked for the federal government, you probably don't think of yourself as a board commissioner or other tribunal. But that's how you're treated in the Federal Courts Act if you exercise any power whatsoever. So exceptionally broad is the executive. That's just the takeaway. I'm trying to land it a few different ways, but it's, again, it's broader than even you think, and it's broader than I think. I still surprise myself with how broad it is. What about political actors? What about cabinet? someone like that, are they part of the executive? And the answer is yes. If they purport to exercise any power whatsoever, they are part of the executive. Really, if you're not a judge or a member of parliament or a member of legislative assembly, and you have anything to do with the government, you're part of the executive. Political actors in cabinet are subject to review by the courts to make sure that any power they purport to exercise is within their jurisdiction. But this introduces a concept we're going to come back to quite a bit. And this is the concept of justiciability. And the issue here is that there are quite a few things that political actors do that the courts say, look, I have the power to review this. I have the power to make an order concerning this, but I'm not going to because I'm concerned about overstepping the proper role of the courts. So this is moving into another concept, justiciability. I'm going to introduce it, and we're going to come back to it. 
But if you look at the diagram on the board, what you're going to see, so legislature is supervised, right? The executive is supervised. They're both supervised by the judiciary. But who supervises the judiciary? Nobody, right? They have to self-police. They have to make sure that they stay properly constrained within their proper uh, role. And they decide only such cases and make only such orders as they deem proper within their conception of the judicial function. And this is a really key concept that I want to, to just take a second on. The courts, especially the Section 96 courts, theoretically have extremely broad powers to hear matters, decide matters, and make orders. In fact, in theory, they're unlimited. There's nothing that these courts can't hear theoretically and no order that they can't craft and make. There's no specific limits. The legislature can introduce limits through legislation, which the courts will obey, unless they think that it interferes with their core functioning as a court. We'll come back to this. And then they'll declare those unconstitutional. So that came up with um, the Civil Resolution Tribunal recently. Familiar, there was, a, there was a case where the Civil Resolution Tribunal was given you know, a bunch of new jurisdiction. Somebody went to the court and ousted, and that jurisdiction was ousted from the BC Supreme Court. And BC Supreme Court struck that law down and said, you can't take away our jurisdiction like that. So a case that I think illustrates this nicely, do you guys learn the Cotter case in constitutional law? Yeah. So Omar Cotter, um, Canadian citizen detained in Guantanamo Bay, right? He brings a charter challenge uh, suggesting the Canadian government has been infringing his charter rights and seeks a remedy of the court ordering the prime minister, Stephen Harper, to negotiate his release from Guantanamo back to Canada. The courts say, indeed, your charter rights are being violated by this state action. And the court says, indeed, we have the power to order the prime minister to conduct foreign affairs in a particular way. Why do we have that power? Because we have radically broad powers. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to interfere with the conduct of foreign affairs. We don't think it's a proper judicial role to do that. It's not that we can't, it's that we shouldn't. And this is the distinction that justiciability um, you need to really have key in your mind in this question of justiciability. The courts have really, really, really broad powers as to what they can do. But in order to stay within the proper scope of how they conceptualize their role in the government to avoid unduly stepping upon the executive or the legislature, 
they will refuse to hear certain cases or issue certain remedies on the basis of justiciability. This is something that we shouldn't be getting into as a court. We shouldn't be making this order as a court. I know I'm throwing a lot of concepts out there and they are going to start coming together and we're going to be hearing them over and over again, to be honest. But I just want to get these concepts introduced and the land more concretely as we go through some cases. But are there any questions so far? All right. So I'm going to move away uh, from these sort of high-level concepts. Um, and I'm going to talk just briefly about what I thought was an interesting component of the book chapter, where I talked about the history of administrative law. And, you know, the, the notion that these, this broad administrative state that we take for such granted is a relatively recent invention. And for a long time, so much more uh, power was wielded by the courts and the legislature than by the executive. There's really been a giant delegation of power away from the judiciary and away from the legislature and to the executive. And the, the book talks about a few reasons why there's been this move to get power away from the judiciary and the legislature and put it in the executive. I'll go through those, but just to give you a, a few examples, has um, anybody here incorporated a company? I may have to do that ever. Yeah, you have. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing that quite often happens. Uh, and you applied, you, 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 know, you applied, got your corporation papers uh, from an executive actor who reviewed it, okayed it, sent you the articles of incorporation, you know, away you go. That wasn't always the case. It used to be that if you wanted to incorporate a company, you know what you had to do? You had to get an active parliament every single time you want to incorporate a company. Now, obviously, that is completely unworkable now. But even the notion of incorporation was a legislative, not an executive function. Anybody here ever gone to residential tenancy branch? You may have to do an RTV dispute. Consider yourself fortunate, to be honest. But it, it, I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, you know, at some point, you'll be landlords or, or tenants, and then there'll be a dispute. Um, RTB hearings are about 45 minutes on the phone. They're available within a month or two after you file, maybe even sooner. Well, it used to be you had to go to court. You have to sue each other. You have to go to the BC Supreme Court if you want to resolve a landlord-tenant dispute. So endless things that we kind of take for granted as executive functions used to reside judiciary or legislature. The book does a good kind of history of the ebbs and flows, but really gets the idea that post World War II, the big push comes. Let's push it all to the legislature. Let's push all these things to administrative tribunals. And it talks a bit about why, which I thought were interesting ideas. I mean, this is more just big picture sort of framework. Um, I don't know how much this really resonates throughout the course, but maybe some of it does. You know, the book had some ideas, why do we move so many things into the executive, to these boards and tribunals and away from the judiciary and the legislature? And it talked about four factors. And one that I think was interesting 
was depoliticizing decisions. And this resonates with me, I think, that a lot of hot-button issues, politicians are really happy to have somebody else make the call. So you see this a lot with giant energy projects where the government, the, 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 especially if you say they have a liberal government, they have a hard time balancing you know, their coalitions who want economic development, environmental protection. So to get political cover for something like a big pipeline project or something like that, the approval has been taken away from uh, parliament directly. So you don't have to go vote. There's no vote on whether the Trans Mountain Pipeline should be built or not. Rather, it goes to the National Energy Board. There's an application. An administrative decision maker hears it, makes a recommendation, and ultimately it's approved or not approved by cabinet. But there's not a, a, a legislative vote on that. So you can take these decisions, kind of put the political sting somewhere else. Well, the experts looked at it and advised us that this was in the best interest of Canada, so we're following that advice, as opposed to really owning a decision. So you can depoliticize or at least remove the political actors one step from a decision by putting it in the executive, in, the, in, a, uh, in a board or tribunal. So that's one of the reasons that the uh, book highlighted for this push away from judiciary legislator into the executive. Second one is the need for greater specialization. And just the reality is we deal with such complex things in modern governance, it would be impossible to expect the legislatures to be able to you know, deeply understand the fine points of all the scientific and technical things that get resolved within executive tribunals these days. Complicated questions of uh, scientific issues like contaminated sites, you know, excess um, food and drug regulation. You know, could you imagine if every time you wanted to, you know, tweak uh, regulation of a pharmaceutical, it took an act of the legislature? They wouldn't have the specialization, and it would overwhelm. So, if you think about the technical and scientific matters that government gets involved with. It makes sense that they start to set up technical and scientific tribunals to answer these questions. Another thing that the book talks about, and this is more getting at moving things out of the judiciary and into the executive, is the reluctance to sorry, gum up the courts with high volume cases. And that, the residential tenancy branch is a great example to me. I'm actually surprised nobody here has had to go to it. Um, you know, usually when I ask that question, a couple people in a group of this size have gone. But the RTB deals with thousands of complaints every year. If those all went to the court, I mean, it, it would 
be a disaster for the courts who are already stretched beyond belief. Like, has anybody here had to try to get on in chambers recently? Any of you work in the summer or a firm? It's a mess. Like, getting just heard by a judge these days is impossible. And if you were to add every RTB case into there, you know, absolutely forget it. What would the actual outcome be if there was no residential tenancy branch and all landlord tenant disputes were being heard by the court? Would there still be the thousands and thousands of disputes? You know, the answer is no. People just wouldn't bother. And this gets to a dynamic we're going to explore more. Who would that favor if people just wouldn't bother go to court, spend all the money for a lawyer, take all that time to try to get a residential tenancy dispute? Well, it would favor the better resourced party, right? The person with less resources that have less access. So this gets that attention we're going to talk about quite a bit in the second half of today. The question of access to justice being furthered through administrative tribunals. Coming back to that. And the final thing that the book talks about for why pushing things out of the legislature and judiciary into the executive, I thought it was interesting. I, I hadn't heard this one before I read that chapter a few years ago, uh, but I looked into it and it's quite an interesting history that there were certain areas where the judiciary just had a really bad reputation as being very biased. And the example the book has is labor relations. And unions felt that they could not go before you know, BC Supreme Court in the 1960s and have anything close to a fair shake. So there started to be this, um, this idea of labor relations boards, which usually are, um, are staffed in, in a way that you have one person appointed by the sort of the union side, one person appointed by the employer side, then one person that the two kind of agree on. So you have somebody who's got the, um, the perspective and the understanding of the perspective of both sides of a dispute. And I see this in my practice that um, you know, I often have a hard time convincing First Nations who are my clients that they're going to get much of a fair shake in the courts. They've had bad experiences in the past. And so the, the reputation of the courts can be antithetical to effectively discharging some of the things that are being, that need to be done within the, um, the society. If people don't feel like the courts are gonna be fair, that can be a big problem. If the courts really aren't fair, well, it's a, it's a huge problem. So setting up boards or setting up other decision-making processes that are more attuned to and representative of the people who are gonna be using them can tend to um, you know, have an overall net positive on the administration of justice broadly. Any questions? All right, let's get back, let's get back to it, everyone. So we, before the break, we got through these three concepts. 
and we got through the the broad ideas of sort of how this framework starts to look. I want to talk about these concepts of legal formalism and legal realism before coming back to really dive into how is it the judiciary does its function of checking the executive. So before we get back to there, let's talk a bit about legal formalism and legal realism as these two competing conceptions of the law and these two competing conceptions of the law that uh, explain so much of the disputes we're going to be talking about in administrative law throughout this course. So legal formalism fundamentally is the idea that there is one single correct objectively knowable, in essence, scientific meaning of the law. It ought to be determined without consideration for you know, policy and judges' own personal views as to what ought to happen. It's not what ought to happen. It's what the law says. And who is it who has the final word on what the law is and what it says, legal formalists would say it's judges. Legal formalism is the dominant theory for a very long time. And if you want to put a name to legal formalism, you've probably heard this name before, but it's Dicey. The British thinker Dicey is a big proponent of legal formalism. And you know, perhaps unexpectedly, there's a, a strong resurgence of interest in Dicey these days. There are societies sort of um, dedicated towards uh, Dicey and interpretation of the law. Um, and, and there's quite a few people who think that we've strayed too far from legal formalism into the competing conception of legal realism. Legal realism is the idea, hey, laws can be ambiguous. They can mean different things to different people. There can be two reasonable interpretations of the same law. And it's unrealistic to think that judges aren't going to consider the consequences of interpreting a law in a particular way. It's unrealistic to think that judges aren't going to shape their interpretation of the law towards the societal outcomes that they favor. And we ought to have a more realistic conception of the law to underpin our legal system. Now, I can say this. Legal realism is called realism because it is real. It's true for sure that there's more than one reasonable interpretation of lots of different laws. If there wasn't, there would not be dissents, right? When the Supreme Court of Canada disagrees on a legal issue, it's not because half of them are bad at law. It's because it's a difficult, ambiguous question that reasonable people can disagree on. I can also tell you it is for sure true that judges, all judges, consider the practical implications of their decisions 
whether consciously or subconsciously, when making their decisions. And, and that's why, you know, I always say as a litigator, you know, the first thing I try to do is make the judge want to find for me by making my case seem like the, the fundamentally just and fair one. Then I can always find a path through the law to that outcome. But if the judge doesn't want to find for you, it's very hard to say you must because the law demands this happen. Usually there's ambiguity somewhere. So I come down hard on the idea that legal realism is descriptively true. The harder question is how do we design our system? Do we embrace the idea that the law is sort of uh, vague often and imprecise and that judges' inclinations and whims and personal preferences are going to guide decision-making? Or do we try to design a system that minimizes that, that believes in there being one true interpretation of the law and tries to, um, tries to provide more consistency on that front? That's a very difficult question. And that's a question that you may feel strongly inclined to one side or the other or see both sides of the question on. But it is a, a question that people do feel strongly about. And I think you'll still see that a lot of the, uh, the sort of forceful disagreement at the Supreme Court of Canada you know, comes down to competing conceptions of what the law ought to be. How much ought we embrace the sort of uncertainty how much ought we strive towards clear objective certainty in the law? So this tension we're going to explore over and over again, the tension between more formalism and more realism. Okay, and I'm going to get in a second to how this really resonates in administrative law. So we're putting a lot of pieces out there, but I'll try to put them all together at the end. Any questions on that dynamic? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I kind of see that as like a very binary perspective of looking at it. Yeah. Um, and I just can't help but feel like there must be many people who see something in the middle. Yeah. So is there, I don't know, I guess, is, is there something like that? Well, I think there is a binariness that's inherent in the key question, which maybe this is a good pivot. And this is the binary thing. If a judge disagrees with the interpretation of the law that an executive actor gives it, I do not think you got it right. I don't think you got it right in a material way. Does that mean that the judge ought to necessarily step in and set aside that decision? Or can that decision stand? And I think there does start to be a strong binary there because one of you has to make the decision. The legal formalist view would be it's the judge. If you got the law wrong in a judge's eye, you got the law wrong. And we need to step in, have the judge step in, apply the law correctly in order to further the rule of law, right? The rule of law demands that. 
legal realist might say, Judge, you think it means one thing. This person said something else. If that person's something else is out there, is crazy, is not supportable, I think most people can, can be okay with the judge stepping in and correcting that. But what if that person, something else, seems pretty reasonable? The law really is unclear. There's two different ways you could go on interpreting this statute. The judge prefers one, this person prefers the other. Who should have the final say? And a legal realist would say, there isn't really one true ultimate outcome. There's not one true, necessary, objectively right interpretation. So they would feel less inclined to say it has to be the judge and perhaps more inclined to say it could be the administrative decision maker. And that's where we've landed almost on everything, is that we're going to recognize there could be more than one possible reasonable interpretation of the law, and we're going to defer, the judges are going to defer to reasonable interpretations done by the executive. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. This is something we're going to land. So I think in terms of philosophical, is there a spectrum between legal realism and formalism? I think you're absolutely right. There must be, for sure. And different thinkers will have different degrees of rigidity in their formalist view. Um, different thinkers will embrace some elements of legal realism while thinking other things go too far. But is there a binary? There kind of is, ultimately, because it resonates in this question of who gets the final say. A really good question. All right, so this is really where we fundamentally are, is this question of how much should we entrust the executive to make these final determinations on questions of law? How much should we let the residential tenancy branch interpret what the residential tenancy act means? How much should we let the workers' compensation board determine what the workers' compensation act means? So why do we have this idea that it might make sense to have the final word be with these tribunals. Why is that a theory that's got some traction? A couple reasons. One is specialization. Judges certainly are, are excellent at statutory interpretation. They've been leaders in the law. But they might not know the practical consequences of interpreting one provision of the Residential Tenancy Act in a particular way nearly as well as a residential tenancy adjudicator who does this day in, day out, six decisions a day, knows that act inside and out. There's a chance greater familiarity with the statutory scheme and how that statutory scheme sort of resonates uh, in, in real world uh, consequences or how it interplays with itself with different portions of it could lead to better decision making if you let the specialized people 
make these decisions. That's one reason. The second reason is a question of access to justice. And the point here, if you let anybody who's unhappy with an administrative decision go to the court, and the court is not going to defer to that decision, but is going to decide the matter anew, reinterpret the law, come to their own conclusion. Well, in essence, if you're unhappy with any administrative decision, if you're well-resourced, you can go take another kick at the can. You can go appeal that, get another kick at the can. So you get minimum three, maybe even more, if there's some internal review mechanisms, chances to get the answer you like. And the less well-resourced person may not be able to participate at all with the lawyer or may be able to participate only in a limited way and may not be able to keep invoking these review and appeal mechanisms. So by saying no, residential tenancy branches word is going to be final has the uh, theoretical idea it's going to level the playing field a bit. But at what expense? Well, the expense of now introducing this concept of uncertainty into the law, not in a descriptive way, but in a frankly structural way. When we start deferring to decisions, even when we think they're wrong, have we undermined the rule of law? This is the tension that we have to sort of, we have to grapple with. And it gets even more complex. We're going to talk about this more, so don't worry too much about this, but this, I want to introduce this idea. The courts have this concept of stare decisis and even um, a expectation that judges of the same court are going to follow each other's decisions. Probably hear the Hansard Spruce Mills principle. Anyways, you get the basic idea that judges follow higher courts and they uh, respect and give great weight to decisions by you know, their, their judges of the same court. So there's a level of predictability, and once the question's answered, it's going to be answered in the same way in other cases you can at least reasonably expect. A very unsatisfying thing for admin tribunal, uh, you know, sort of theory and criticism, is that isn't the case. Admin tribunals are not bound by their own decisions usually. And they can offer different interpretations of the same law, coming to different conclusions, and both can be held to be reasonable. And that's very frustrating. So you can go to a court and judicially review an administrative decision, and the court will say, you know what, I'm going to dismiss it because that's a reasonable interpretation. Somebody can read that decision, and they say, hold on. This is a reasonable interpretation, and they gave a completely different interpretation in my case. I'm going to go to the court, and the court will say, that's also a reasonable interpretation. Even if these things conflict, that's a possible outcome. We'll talk more about that. I want to introduce that concept, but just so you're getting the kind of tensions and some of the trade-offs that are inherent in allowing this deference to happen. 
I'm not expecting this to land totally yet, but I just want to introduce these concepts. We're going to really follow through on these throughout the course. So who should make the decisions and what kind of oversight is the court going to give? These are core questions that we're going to explore. I want to talk briefly about the different ways the court can get involved in an administrative decision. This is um, just structurally important to know that there's three different ways. The first one is an action for damages. Sometimes you sue the government because you say they did something that was illegal, that they couldn't do, they caused you damages, you're suing, this is in tort, okay? You probably talked a bit about government liability and tort in tort. Um, maybe there's a, a class or two on it. You may remember vaguely that there's some limits on the ability to hold the government liable in tort, but that it can be possible. Um, we're not going to go much farther than just remembering that in this course. This is not what this is about. But if you want to think about how can the judiciary check the executive, one way is you can go to the judiciary and say the executive did something illegal, caused me damages, and I want money. That's tort law, but it is one way the judiciary gets involved in policing the executive. So right now I'm doing a case, I'm working on final arguments right now. Uh, company Teal Cedar is suing the BC government for a whole bunch of money uh, because they say that the BC government enacted legislation and regulations more actually, more precisely, enacted regulations which amounted to a breach of contract, uh, amounted to taking away their tree farm license interests and they're demanding millions of dollars of compensation. Fundamentally, they're saying the BC government executive acted illegally and they want money. It's a tort case. So you're thinking, how could the courts get involved? Choice one, tort law. Not the focus of this course. We'll touch on it in passing here and there, but that's not our focus. The second way that the courts get involved in policing the executive is called a statutory appeal mechanism. And this is important, and we're going to come back to this quite a bit. Sometimes, the legislature empowers the executive to do something and says, if you're not happy with what the executive does here, you can appeal to the court and they'll review it. This is going to come up, uh, hopefully not in your personal, but you are all going to apply to the Law Society of British Columbia, in, presumably, or another law society, but you're all going to try to become lawyers, uh, most likely. And when you apply to become a lawyer, there's a credentials process and there's a possibility that um, there could be an issue and there could be a panel of the law society who could decide that you're not allowed to become a lawyer. It's possible. That is a part of the executive. They're uh, exercising powers given to them by the Legal Professions Act. The Legal Professions Act says that if you're unhappy with the decision by the Law Society, you can appeal to the Court of Appeal. You can go right to the Court of Appeal and argue the Law Society got it wrong. So what's happened here? 
the legislature has empowered the law society part of the executive to do something, decide who gets to be a lawyer, but they put a check on that by saying, if you're unhappy with it, come talk to us at the Court of Appeal and we can straighten it out. So statutory appeals are pretty easy to get your head around. They're really important when we come to a discussion of what standard of review. Do you defer to questions when there's a statutory appeal? Come back to that much later in the course. But the other thing, the much more sort of central to this course and really the, the procedural vehicle that we're going to focus on is called judicial review. And this next part I'm going to talk about is really important. And, and if you get this and you get my little discussion on privative clauses, you're in great stead to, to go forward with this course in a good way. Um, so, but, and if you don't, I understand, I didn't get it right away, uh, but it, it hopefully will land um, you know, in the next few weeks. So judicial review has no basis in legislation. It doesn't have to. There, there's some legislation that now defines procedure in judicial review, but, the, but just think, leaving that aside, theoretically, I don't need legislation to tell me I can do a judicial review. That's the distinction between a statutory appeal and judicial review. Judicial review comes from an idea grounded in the rule of law and responsible government that if somebody in the executive or purporting to be part of the executive does something and they have no legal basis to do that, that thing can be given no legal effect. It cannot be given any force. What you're saying when you apply for a judicial review is that somebody in the executive did something they had no jurisdiction to do. Their jurisdiction is set by statutes and regulations, and they exceeded their jurisdiction in purporting to do something. So the court doesn't need to be invited to interfere here because what you have is somebody doing something that's contrary to the rule of law, purporting to exercise some power that they have no jurisdictional basis, no statutory authorization, no regulation, nothing to support that. And the court sees its role within this structure of policing that and making sure the executive stays within the scope of their delegated authority. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Sometimes the legislature invites the judiciary to the party in essence. Legal Professions Act, hey, benchers decide the admissibility of law society, but 
applicant come to the court if you disagree with the law society determination sometimes it's the opposite and the legislature says stay out of here this is what's called a privative clause privative clause it is something in legislation that says don't go to court court don't interfere here leave this decision with this executive person and it's not for you to review so section 84.1 of the residential tenancy act talks about the jurisdiction in essence of the residential tenancy board the director is kind of the head and it delegates power down throughout the board so this is kind of the jurisdiction of everybody there the director has exclusive jurisdiction to inquire into hear and determine all those matters and questions of fact law and discretion arising and required to determine and dispute resolution and to make any order permitted to be made a decision or order of the director on a matter in which respect the director has exclusive jurisdiction is final and conclusive and is not open to question or review in any court like couldn't be a lot clearer to say courts butt out if the residential tenancy director makes a decision that is final and we're done here so does that mean no judicial review from residential tenancy decisions and the answer is no it doesn't why well the courts come up with this idea that if there is a decision that you have no jurisdiction to make that's outside of your jurisdiction you can't stop the court from fixing that through legislation through anything that would undermine the court's essential function in this scheme and would lead to a grave affront to the rule of law because you could have administrative decision makers in essence then empowered to do anything the director could make orders that are manifestly um, outside their jurisdiction and incredibly unfair and incredibly contrary to whatever parliament said was their power and the court could do nothing if you were to give these privative clauses the kind of effect that they look like they have so if you go to residential tenancy branch and the adjudicator says you know landlord i know you want to get this person out of here and that's a pretty nice mercedes you drove up in so why don't you give me the keys to that I'll get your eviction to stand or something blatantly bad like that you know it's probably too extreme an example to to land but you get the kind of idea that things that could be so far outside of your conceivable jurisdiction that in essence judges have to be able to to say you you have the jurisdiction to shake somebody down and take their car because they you know in this residential tenancy dispute there are things that are just kind of beyond the pale so once you get that idea that there must be some boundary as to what your 
conceivably allowed to do as a residential tenancy director, then the question becomes, where is the boundary? You know, but if there is a boundary and judges are allowed to police that boundary, then the notion that their workings will not be subject to question or review in any court, that can't be given the sort of impact that it would look on its face like it's being, like it's being done. So judicial review is this. It's the process of the courts reviewing actions of the executive to make sure they stayed within their jurisdiction. Where is that jurisdiction found? It's going to be found in the statutes and the regulations passed pursuant to those statutes. So it's a key part of admin law is you're going to be reading a lot of statutes. You're going to be looking into these statutes to ascertain what is the jurisdiction of this body. Any questions on this so far? Yeah. Yes, and this is the key thing is we start to get the nuances. What is the scope of their powers? That's a great question and a great segue to the, the thing I wanted to talk about next, to be honest. So this sounds really limited, right? Okay, you're not shaking somebody down for a car. You've made a decision about a tenancy You've said that this tenancy, um, you know, in fact, there was reasonable grounds for the landlord to evict you and you're not going to be getting any uh, compensation. Well, now we're clearly within your jurisdiction. These are the kind of questions that were, that were um, assigned to you. So are we done here? Like, because this course pretty easy, kind of fundamentally. And there are two things that really complicate this analysis. And they tie back into the two pillars of administrative law that I uh, alluded to in the first class. Fairness and reasonableness. So what the courts have said is, look, Parliamentary supremacy, if the legislature says something, says you can do something, I'm going to respect that. But where there's ambiguity, I'm going to make two assumptions. I'm going to assume the legislature never intended to give you, tribunal, jurisdiction to act unfairly. I'm going to assume you didn't get jurisdiction to act unfairly. If you did act unfairly, then you've exceeded your jurisdiction. Second, I'm going to assume the legislature did not give you jurisdiction to act unreasonably. 
if you did act unreasonably, you exceeded your jurisdiction. So, we now have a whole bunch of stuff that we can look at in the court. We have procedural fairness and review of the substance of a decision to ensure it's reasonable. This is what we're going to spend a lot of the course unpacking. How do the courts go about this fundamental analysis? But it always comes back to this theoretical idea that if you acted unfairly or unreasonably, unless parliament or the legislature explicitly said you're allowed to act unfairly or unreasonably, we're going to assume they never intended to let you do that. And we're going to intervene, strike down the law, or sorry, strike down the decision. So we navigate around privative clauses through the rule of law and through this idea state action must be grounded in some source of power and if it's not it's the judge's role to police that to make sure that that isn't given any effect So this is a tricky concept. Any any questions on this? All right. So where we're going with this course is we're going to spend a lot of time on how a court goes about analyzing what is fair and analyzing what is reasonable. But you always need to bear in mind that the only reason we're analyzing what's fair or what's reasonable when we're doing a judicial review is because of a rebuttable presumption that you weren't allowed to do something unfair or unreasonable. And you always need to come back to whether the statute explicitly authorizes what happened. And we'll see there are statutes that authorize tribunals to act unfairly. In fact, that is quite often the case. Or sorry, unfairly, yes. I meant to say authorize you to act unreasonably. There are statutes that allow you to act in a way that would seem unfair. And there are statutes that allow you to act in a way that's unreasonable which may seem kind of remarkable, but actually it's quite often the case in British Columbia. Many tribunals in British Columbia have, uh, are governed by a statute that says they can act 
unless they act what's called patently unreasonable, a patently unreasonable manner, which means it's a very hard distinction to draw when you get into this, but they say, in essence, just being unreasonable is not enough to justify interference. It has to be openly, clearly, evidently, and obviously unreasonable. It's a very hard distinction. But the, the idea that the legislature sometimes would authorize somebody to act even unreasonably gets at this idea of parliamentary supremacy. Well, they're allowed to do whatever they want to do. And if you wanted to challenge that, you'd have to find a constitutional hook. We'll also see statutes that authorize things that would seem to be unfair. All right, so the la any questions, any more questions on, on that? Okay, so we are um, we're almost done for today. I just want to briefly um, touch base on the Section 96 courts uh, question again um, and frame this in just one other way that I don't think is quite as helpful, but some people might find it more helpful. I think it's the way it's framed in the book. Um, so I like thinking it, of it as um, the, the question of privative clauses as being this idea rooted in the rule of law that a tribunal cannot exceed its, uh, its statutory jurisdiction. The book also frames it in another way, which is in essence, who is the body that can do anything whatsoever without being subject to um, you know, external check apart from appeal? Who's the body with all this power? Who's the body with inherent unlimited jurisdiction? It's the section 96 courts. And who's the only section 96 courts in town? Well, it's the superior courts of every province. And the idea, another way of looking at it, is if you created an administrative body and said, courts, you could never look into what they're doing. You could never second guess anything that they're doing. They can make any order and never be subject to review by you. In essence, you've empowered them to the same level that the courts are empowered. You've created another court. And constitutionally, you can't do that. So that's another theory that I think they're consistent in the sense that they, they both posit this idea that there must be a limited set of powers given to a, uh, a tribunal. If you exceed that jurisdiction, the rule of law demands a check on that. But that's another theory that gets at why these privative clauses can't work to oust all review. I remember having a lot of trouble with this tension in admin law that we're going to be talking so much about respect for legislative intent, and we're going to really ignore these privative clauses in a big way in the sense that we're reviewing these decisions quite carefully very often for reasonableness and fairness. But if you can understand the theoretical ideas behind why the courts have to be able to police the executive, 
and thereby understand why privative clauses can't oust all that review, then I think you have the big picture grounding to move forward and to get into the substance of the course. So if it hasn't quite landed yet, that's totally fine. But if it has, then you know I think we're in we're in a really good position. Um, any questions? All right. Well, I think we can stop there. That's quite a lot of information for for the first day. Um, next class will be about rule of law, reading in the book. And then we'll have cases on the rule of law on Friday. So it'll be a real deep dive into rule of law, which will give us a chance to revisit many of these ideas. And certainly when questions arise, and I'm sure they will, you know, feel free to, um, to, to, to raise them next week. All right, thanks so much.